Hey everyone, this is Eric Tornberg, and you're listening to Execs by On Deck. Execs is a show for founders, operators, and leaders who want to understand the playbooks, frameworks, and tactics that leading tech companies today have used to scale. Our guests are tech execs in key roles at top tech companies who share their hard-won, earned secrets on how to scale faster. Sarah Smith is currently a partner at Bain Capital Ventures after an early career building elite HR teams for huge tech players, including Facebook and Quora, where she helped scale Quora from 40 people to 160 people in three years. In this episode, we discussed hiring that first crucial people person, how to train first-time management, how to nail goal setting, and how to improve vesting schedules. Sarah's insight is valuable. We hope you enjoy. So Sarah, one thing that I'm curious about is when people are looking for senior people talent, um, you know, one thing that your background proves is that people without prior experience in the role can come in and do really great work. And so I'm curious how you advise founders for what to look for in senior people talent and how they should be open-minded to people who don't have that prior experience, but what, what really they should be looking for. Yeah, I hear this a lot from founders that there's always this tension of, do I hire someone who's done HR forever? And am I going to end up with someone who's like a, you know, 20 year Oracle, like by the book kind of policy person, or, you know, do I, can I find someone who's maybe a bit more creative and really um, aligned with my values and my culture and get great talent into the organization, especially given how competitive it is. I'm obviously a data point of one, but I have known many other people who have made the transition from essentially being a people leader, someone who's built teams, who's hired people, who's had to fire people, who's worked through really difficult interpersonal situations, um, who's had to do budgeting, you know, rapid scaling and hiring, like all the kinds of things that are typically found in a hopefully a, a thriving early stage company. So I think if you find someone who has that sort of managerial background, whether that was in sales or ops or frankly, even engineering, like a lot of people forget that Chris Cox at Facebook actually led HR in the early days. Um, so you can find people from all different backgrounds to to run HR. But I think they need to be really, really committed to the interpersonal side, like really love managing people, leadership, building up people. Um, they love you know thinking about ways to build inclusive cultures um, and so, so you need someone who's got like this people management background, but then there's also this sort of business side to HR that I think a lot of people also forget that is important when you're working with, for example, finance and figuring out like, what do we have in terms of our budget for comp for our equity pool and equity refreshers? Like there's, you do live in spreadsheets a little bit as an HR person. So I think you need to find someone who likes the sort of business side of that as well. And then last is just, I think of it as this like kind of X factor, which is just sort of judgment. Um, and it's a really around, you know, knowing when you need to call an employment lawyer. <laughs> I mean, like you don't need to have 20 years of HR experience, but you need to know when 
wait, this feels like a little like high stakes. I think I need to call someone in to kind of help me with this and make sure I'm doing whatever I'm doing is legal. And I think that's the thing that I recommend to people who are making the switch is make sure you pair that person with an awesome employment lawyer kind of on call. Totally. So at, at Cora, you, you kind of built the, the people function from scratch. Talk a little bit about the team that you built and what that looked like at, at different stages. What, what can a founder expect in terms of how, how that team will evolve and what, what's it plan for? Yeah. In the early days, I mean, when I joined to set the stage, um, Cora had just raised the Series B and was about 40 employees, you know, very, very early, definitely pre-monetization. Uh, so it was mostly engineering and design and product and data were the majority of, of the headcount there at the time. And um, the recruiter that they had had prior to that had just left. And so it was really just me. And we had just hired one university recruiter. So that was it for like HR and recruiting team. And I think in the early days, you know, for me, I I don't know if it's like having grown up in the Midwest, like I'm just happy to like roll up my sleeves and literally do anything. Like I'll clean the toilets if I have to, it doesn't matter. Um, and so spent a lot of the time in the early days just putting the basic tooling in place. Like if any of you ever even heard of Jobvite, this was like a horrible ATS like product that people were using at the time. This is right before Lever and Greenhouse uh, started to take off. And so I went on a hunt for like my first couple months, like, you know, here and there meeting and looking at different systems to use to help track rec recruiting. Cause it was just like, it was kind of a mess. Like we were hiring really fast you know, we're trying to set up lots of interviews. And to me, the most important thing at that stage is you've just done the work of hiring these amazing engineers who have every opportunity in front of them. And then you're going to go throw them in like 10 hours a week of interviews. Like nothing like crushes the soul, like 10 hours of interviews <laughs> if, if none of those are leading to hire. So I think you have to like think about like how do you make it as efficient as possible for that early team so that they can not only be building, which is what they came to do in the first place, but, you know, be a part, know that the time that they're going to be spending on recruiting is like really high quality and going to lead to really good outcomes and help them recruit great people. And so spent a lot of time in the early days just getting the systems in place, everything from actual software like ATS and HRIS um, and our comp system and designing all of that. But but actually spent a lot of time in the early days, I think this will resonate with a lot of early founders, is like, how are we making decisions on hiring? Like when I came in, you know, people were really nice because it was a small team still. And it was sort of like, you know, it was, we were a little bit more in this consensus basis of, does every, is everyone comfortable with moving forward with this person? Like that is like one of the most inefficient things you can do in recruiting. Like you really need to have a very clear point of view that the hiring manager is the responsible person to ultimately make the decision. Everyone else is an input. And by the way, the important part for everyone who is an interviewer is that they need to come out of that interview with a point of view, like hire or no hire, but not like I'm on the fence. If you're on the fence in the middle of the interview, like you need to keep asking questions to get you to one side of that fence. So we spent a lot of time helping people just get better at, as interviewers so that they could walk out with a strong point of view. We get higher quality feedback and be able to make a decision for that candidate, which is also great for them. What's an example of, of a question that helps one get to, because I, I find myself on the fence, about, like what comes to mind? Yeah, you're hiring like a lot. <laughs> so I can imagine yeah. you're in the yeah. middle of this right now. Um, totally. 
So I, when I think about, I, I always, as an interviewer, try to do, and there's, by the way, there's a lot of tech that's been built now to help like aid interviewers. Um, and so, you know, I haven't even personally tried a lot of them yet, but I think there's, we're moving in that direction where you may even have like an AI aid next to you that will help you with that. But in short of that, the algorithm you'd run in your head is like 15, let's say you have a 45 minute interview. I'd say like 15 to 20 minutes in, I just mentally do a check of like, Okay, if I had to decide right now, where am I at? And if I am leaning out, why am I leaning out? And what can I do to probe more in the areas of concern that I have? So let's say somebody came into the interview and you felt like the answers were a little bit rambly, like they weren't very structured. And it was for a role that actually required a fair bit of structure. Well, then if they've been rambling, I might just say, hey, can you can you talk me through a project that you led recently? And how, everything from how you set it up, how you scoped it out to the execution of it, and then the, the ultimate results and how you evaluated that, like put some structure in front of them and then just see how they respond. Like, do they actually then now kind of walk through something more systematically? Um, and if you kind of keep seeing that same concern play out, well, then you walk out a lot more confident that, hey, I, you know, I had this concern. I tri- you know, triple or quadruple checked on it throughout the interview and it just didn't get better. Maybe someone else has a different data point from their interview. You know, at least you can compare and contrast. But um, just try to think about like what is that lingering concern? Maybe a third of the way through the interview, and and try to make sure you give yourself enough time to double click on that. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so you're building the infrastructure, you're getting the systems in place, you're getting some recruiters. How does the the team expand from there as Cora advanced? Yeah. So a big part of growing an organization, of course, is like, how do you how do you organize the organization? Like, how do you think about leadership and frankly, like layering and management layers and teams and sub teams? And um, that is, I think, one of the biggest challenges a lot of people face. Typically, you know, rounds are series A's and B's don't really mean a lot these days. Everything's all wonky with like sizes and stage and so forth. But I'd say in general, a lot of times when people hit series B, that's when they kind of start seeing a time of growing early employees who maybe have never been managers into managers for the first time. They might be hiring external managers in to take over some teams that had been led by early employees. And those kinds of things, I think, are probably the area to focus on at that stage when you're in that like 50 to 100, because you're you're starting to cross that chasm where not everyone is going to know everyone or know everything that's going on like they used to. And so you really have to start to be able to rely on a very strong set of people leaders that are, you know, um, typically sitting in between maybe the entry-level employees or like newer employees to the organization and, you know, probably a C-level executive. Like that's kind of what's trying to happen there. So at that point, what we did at Coro is spent a lot of time on investing in coaching, for example, and leadership development and training for especially first-time managers, um, because that can be a pretty overwhelming experience for them. Uh, I personally spent a lot of time just as a head of HR and people with those with those folks to make sure they felt supported, especially around performance review time or uh, managing outlaw performers, or if their team wasn't growing fast enough and they were struggling to recruit, like how do we beef up our sourcing efforts to help them um, get the team, you know, growing a little bit faster so they can meet their goals. So a lot of that is spent, I'd say at that time on, on the management and leadership layer. Say a bit about that because we have a lot of first time managers at, at our company we're starting to think about, okay, we need to invest in, in manager training. 
what does that look like when it's done right? Or, or what advice do you have for companies that need to do something similar? I start all of this, like anything around HR training, leadership development, it kind of comes down to the first principle of the people function, which is, are you clear as a company on your mission and your values? That's like tables. It seems so basic and table stakes, but I see a lot of people either not even take the time to codify that, or if they do, they do it very quickly in like their first kind of few weeks as a company. And then it just like sits in a notion doc somewhere and no one ever looks at it or talks about it again. I think it's really important that as the CEO, founder of your company and your head of people, VP people, chief people officer, that you really think of that as a, as a guiding compass and force in how you go about literally everything from hiring and attracting people into your expectations around performance. And so if you have those values, then you can really shape your management training around that. So if, if for example, one of your values is, um, you know, you really care about moving fast, like executing quickly, right? Well, then like think about what does that mean then in terms of how our managers are expected to create high performing teams? Like probably means that we have to have a lot of autonomy. And how as a manager do you do, you do that? Well, you make sure that you have very clear like OKRs, you have clear documentation with your team, but like what's happening this week, what's happening this month. And then, hey, go, like make sure that you've got everything that people need to be able to move fast and get those things done. So I think it really has to map to the values, but the core tenets of like good people management is how do you build, you know, really strong emotional relationships with your employees and make sure they feel really cared for. And the best practices are, you know, how to how to structure one-to-ones and make sure you're holding them consistently with people. Um, I think in a remote world, this is even more important that the, you know, it's really easy for people to switch times on the, on the calendar and nothing makes people feel less important than a last minute calendar switch. So I, I would spend a lot of time with our managers on just like how to hold effective one-to-ones. Um, the best article I've ever seen written on this actually is by, if you look up Rands and Repose, R-A-N-D-S in repose, R-E-P-O-S-E. He's a form, very early engineering manager from Apple. And he's written the best article I've ever seen on, on one-to-ones, um, which is it's called something like the like the update, the vent, and the disaster. And it basically is like 80% of the time, it's just going to be updates. 20% of the time, or sorry, 10% of the time, 50% of the time, it's going to be kind of like a venting session. And then 5% of the time, once in a while, you get that kind of like disaster one-to-one. Um, and it helps managers kind of think about how to contextualize those and how to manage those. But to me, that's a really important drumbeat for every, you know, first time managers to make sure they're just like meeting consistently with everyone on their team. And then the other, the other areas we talk about is just ongoing performance management and working on giving managers great tools around performance management. And if someone's a low performer, for example, like you're working through that with them and how to, how to set, make sure there's clear expectations identifying where the Delta is and then supporting that manager and working quickly to manage that person out of the organization. If it's not, if it's not going well. I'd love to pull on that thread about performance management, actually, as we're sort of growing to that point, we're instituting our first performance management systems and sort of leveling and all these people function systems. When you rolled that out at Quora, what framing did you use with the employees for people to understand like the importance of it uh, and not sort of the hamstringing feeling it might feel if you joined as an early employee, there were 10 people or something. Now all of a sudden we've got all these like 
what might feel like corporate systems. How do you sort of play that balance? Yeah, it is a hard like kind of balance to strike in terms of like making sure people feel like they have, you know, no limits. Like it's like a lot of transparency, a lot of autonomy. Like, you know, nobody wants to feel like, oh, I'm a I'm a level 7.2, you know, like <laughs> like it feels like you're a robot or something. But I think it's important for people to understand like the reason you have that is because as an organization, like we value equity in terms of our compensation, right? And like that at the end of the day, that's like we all get compensated in so many different ways. Now it's not just cash and equity. It's like the purpose of what we're building. It's all of that. But at the end of the day, like it's interesting. People really do care that they're getting paid fairly. <laughs> like they want to, and, and we want that too. And so that's why you have to figure out kind of how do we loosely try to measure what your impact is in the organization relative to other people in the organization with an overlay, of course, of like your market, the, the demand in the market for your skills. So you know, it's always tricky to say, hey, you're a, you're a level four engineer and, and we can map out roughly what that means in terms of the core competencies of engineering. But, you know, the market values that differently than a level four HR person. That's just the reality. And I think having those frank conversations with people is really important. But I do think having some rough career rubrics, like level rubrics, is very helpful around like, yeah, that's kind of going from 50 to 100 because especially for newer employees organization and especially now that people are remote and distributed, they have even less signal on like, hey, what does it take for me to grow here? What does it take for me to get to the next level? What does it take for me to increase my impact and my compensation? Before they could kind of just look across the room and see the VP of engineering and be like, all right, I see how that person's running the show. But now like so much of it's happening in different Zoom rooms and they don't see it. And so I think having more documentation around just like, here's like a general, like here's what we expect around code quality. Here's what we expect around infrastructure expertise. Here's what we expect around your efforts in recruiting and what you would be doing, you know, to help grow the organization. And maybe here's a couple anecdotes at each of those levels. Like just that alone, I think is helpful also as a springboard, frankly, between the manager and the person on their team of like, hey, here's where you're knocking out of the park. And if I were to increase your impact over the next six months, these would be the two boxes I'd spend more time on. Like, let's get you more involved in recruiting. Let's get you like spending some more time with the infra team, because that's just an area of the technology stack you don't know as well. Um, but I think having something, you know, I feel like as much as we resist sometimes documentations or lines or grids or spreadsheets, like, having structure and clarity actually can often help people really thrive in an organization because they just have a lot more certainty and they know what's expected of them. How do you think about performance management in terms of feedback versus ratings and sort of the the different theses on that? What's your what's your take on how the best performance management might look? Yeah, again this really comes down to the values of the organization. Like if you are let's take, take, take it to the extreme transparency was the number one value you have as a company. Well, then you might go with a system where you have all the feedback that everyone gives. Everyone is totally transparent. Like I could read Joe's feedback to Eric and vice versa, because like transparency is like a number one value for us as a company. Most people are kind of somewhere in the middle where they want that to be maybe a little bit more of a personal uh, conversation and, um, you know, collect that and share that, you know, in a more uh, refined way. But I personally think the biggest area where people often go wrong is they spend so much time focused on the distribution of the ratings being a certain way because that maps to a budget and that maps to comp. And 
And what ends up happening, I saw this, frankly, early days at Facebook was like the dollars at play were actually so great, depending on what your rating ended up being, that the entire performance cycle got focused on exactly who got what ratings. And then when people got the reviews, all they looked at was the rating. So the, the the really rich feedback that you were getting from your peers and people above you and below you and around you, like you might read that, but frankly, like you went, most people went straight to the rating because that just like, you know, was mapped to their comp. So at, at core, I really tried to decouple those um, and not actually have the rating determine your comp, like your level determined your comp. Your rating was an input into whether or not you would get promoted at some point. But the rating didn't directly to, like tie to a bonus or to or to equity, and I think that's to me that's an important thing is that you really want performance reviews to focus on the quality of the actual feedback and how do you increase people's impact. That's a really helpful framing, and I wonder how it ties to something you brought up a little bit earlier in the conversation about OKRs or goal setting frameworks um, more broadly. Got a couple questions along those lines, but would love to know. The way you think about goal setting, OKRs, do they relate to performance management in your mind, the way you think about it? Or do you intentionally sort of separate them? Or how do you think about their relation? I think in terms of best practices for goal setting, especially in startups, this is everyone feels this like pendulum swing of like, oh my gosh, we need more, we need more OKRs, we need more structure, we need to know what everybody's doing, we need to do this like quarterly, we need to do this big planning process. So then they do that and they find like, it's out of date in a week because like startups just change so fast. And like, it's just really hard, I think, to, to set goals that are much longer than like a week or two weeks. I do think as an organization, you could set like two to three North star, massive company goals, right? Like I, like I remember one year at, at Facebook, it was like around kind of like revenue and site speed or like the two I remember were just like, those were so critical because everything mapped to those two and, 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 and user growth, but like basically user growth led to revenue and site speed led to user growth. So like all three of those were like, you know, fairly um, intertwined and those were big enough goals that the whole company could kind of keep pushing towards those for an entire year. But then at a sub team level, then you kind of have to figure out what's the right cadence for that sub team. So for recruiting, for example, it's pretty common that you have quarterly hiring goals. That's just like, because it just takes time, like to build your pipeline, to like move people through the process. So, and then, you know, ind- individual recruiters might set their own like weekly OKRs, for example, with their manager, of like what inputs they need basically to make this funnel happen. In engineering, you might have six week sprints or eight week sprints or two week sprints. Like, you know, I think it really just depends but I'd pick the right time frame that works for your organization and then make sure you have pretty simple, like company-wide, two to three company-wide goals. As a team, you probably have like a couple key initiatives you're trying to get done during that period. And then as a manager, you work together with them on whether it's every week, every two weeks, you know, something that gives you enough flexibility where they're meaningful and they actually drive day-to-day behavior versus setting a bunch of goals for a month and then three weeks in, you don't even remember what goals you set because like the world's changed. And do you recommend everybody in an organization having sort of transparent goals or, or individual OKRs or where do you think about the OKR level sort of or altitude going? If you have a business level, maybe you've got a couple departments or business units. Do you, do you think all the way down to the individual level is the most effective way? Does it depend on the organization or size? Yeah, I think it depends on, definitely depends on the organization and size. I think what you're looking for, though, KRs, is like two things. One is like, 
accountability. Like you want to make sure everybody's pulling their weight and you can count on each other to get your pieces of the puzzle done so you can make progress towards your mission. Um, and then there's the coordination piece. Like you have visibility. So you kind of know like, oh, I, oh, I know this team over there is working on this thing and actually what we're doing also. So you know where the dependencies are in terms of like coordination. But I, I really think the thing to avoid, and I, I've seen this happen again and again as, co- as companies get bigger, is the amount of like, frankly, quote, like homework people have related to goals and reporting on outcomes and goals, like ends up being so much that it 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 doesn't really like result in the right payoff, if that makes sense. So I think it's important that the head of people, the founder, like people leaders in the company generally watch like, okay, let's be clear what we're asking people isn't so much time on this administrative part of goal setting that it's like, it's like a motivation killer. And it's like taking time away, frankly, from direct development. Like I remember seeing things where we'd have to do these roll-ups when we got bigger at Facebook that were due, like they were going to go out on Monday morning, which meant like the VP needed it by like third Friday the director needed it by Thursday. Managers needed it by Thursday morning. And so people were writing like Wednesday night, something that was going to get published the next Monday. It was like ridiculous. So you got to be like really careful about how much actual reporting you need. I, I just encourage people to try to keep it super, super lightweight. Maybe it's like a quick all hands, like highlights, like accomplishments this last week, key blockers. That's another great thing I've seen people do is just sort of like just highlight the like one win and one loss of the week or like one thing that is really blocking your team that maybe others can help out with. Like I just focus on the bottlenecks than than the administrative overhead. It's really, really helpful insight there. Um, I'd love to wrap up this. Line. I'm actually curious, what, what, are, what are you using? Are you are you trying like an OKR system now? Yeah, we, we are. We're um, just implementing our first one uh, and it's going to be at, the, the altitudes are just at the company level. We've got two to three OKRs there and then at the business unit level. So one below it. Yeah. And that's all we're, we're going for now. But thinking about how we, you know, bring accountability to the rest of the org, whether that's through OKRs or, or some weekly accountability tracker or however people feel most empowered. And so I would love to know from you to sort of wrap this topic up uh, or this this line of questioning you talked about if speed is a is a main value of the organization, which at OnDeck it definitely is, <laughs> that there's a few a few um, pillars that need to be in place. You mentioned OKRs in this as one. What are the various other aspects of the situation that need to be true for people to really be able to move quickly at a company? Um, whether that's look up and see a goal and be able to run towards it. What's sort of your other advice around that? I think the most important thing is that people have a lot of clarity around their alignment to the mission and the goals for that particular period of time and their role in it and what's expected of them. Um, and so the most the most important thing is people know what decisions are responsible for and what decisions other people are responsible for and how they can influence those. But once those decisions are made, they have to get on the bus and execute towards those decisions, whether they agree or not. At Quora, we actually implemented something called um, DRI, this directly responsible individual. Every project, every hire, every any decision that had to get made at the company, it was pretty clear who the DRI was. Like we would know. And so if there was any ambiguity or any question marks about accountability or or like, hey, I need to do this thing, and like, who's the DRI for blah? Like you could you could find that out very quickly. Now for that system to work, and this was actually originally developed at Apple, um, it's a press practice there. So so I'm a huge fan of this like. 
um, consultative decision making, where like there's one person responsible for the decision and the consequences of the decision, but others can influence it. The, the important part of it is that you do need to have an escape valve where if somebody like, let's say Eric, I don't know, wanted to, well, it's not a good example because he's the CEO, but let's say Joe, you wanted to do something. You're like, Hey, instead of a podcast, I think we should do a super high end Oprah style, high production thing in LA. Like let's spend a million bucks on it. It's going to be amazing. Super differentiated. And like others in the team are like, no, 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 terrible idea. Like that's not where the world's going. And you're just like, no, no, no. I like, I'm responsible. I'm doing it. Like you got to have a way for people to pull the ripcord and basically say, I feel so strongly about this decision being wrong that I want to elevate it above Joe. And then we can all three of us talk it out. And, and that's got to be an okay thing to do. Like it can't be like, you can't harbor feelings that someone elevated. Like there's got to be a mechanism for when those extreme cases happen that there seems like someone's really making a bad decision, but that's pretty rare that that happens. And I think the most important thing is that people know who's responsible for what decisions, and then they can actually move very quickly towards execution. That makes a lot of sense. DRI is a, um, is a nicer uh, version of the, of the term that I heard from uh, Jeff Weiner, I believe uh, throat to choke. (laughs) Yeah, that's, um, (laughs) <laughs> you know, I like, I, I feel like consequences as a word, like typically as a negative connotation, right? Yeah. But like, I really tried to push myself to think of it more as like, it's both. It's like upside and downside. Like you, if you hire someone, you're responsible for the consequences of that hire, whether that's like the best rock star the company ever hired or the worst, but like, it's your, you're, you're responsible. So yeah, totally. I'm a big fan of that. The um, <laughs> throw to choke. <laughs> the visual is so strong. The it's like a cartoon, you know. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, let me actually zoom out. I mean, one thing that's that OnDeck has that a lot of people have, right? They're they're growing. They have product market fit, and then okay, they they need to hire their first people leader. And, and there's like many companies, we hired a bunch of generalists to start out. You know, some ex founder types, really talented people. And so there's a question of, hey, should we kind of promote someone from within the company who hasn't done this role before? And doesn't have the expertise that we need, but hey, they're a really smart, capable person and they can figure it out. Or do we, you know, bring someone who, who's done it before to bring kind of necessary experience that an expertise that we don't yet have at the company? Any thoughts or, or advice on that? I bet, I bet a bunch of companies experience something like that. Yeah, I think both can work, but there is a lot of value, I think, in having someone take on that role internally. If they really are, if there's someone that you believe like completely embodies the values and the culture you want to build and cultivate as a company, that's a huge positive. That's going to be really hard for you to get from someone on the outside. Um, you know, in Cora's case, it was actually unique in that I was the 45th user of Cora. Like I was in the office and it was three people with like granola bars and boxes and water bottles stacked up against the walls, like Charlie, Adam and Rebecca. Like I was literally there day one when the product was released I didn't join until like three weeks or sorry, three years later, but I felt like I kind of was internal because I'd just been like a groupie. Like I'd been hanging out with the company for years while I was at Facebook. So in a way I was, I felt like a little bit of an internal person coming into the job because I just knew the team and the ethos so well. So I think internal is a great option. If you have that person, often that will come from someone who has either sales experience, operations experience, recruiting experience. Um, But it can come from like, 
you have a super gregarious engineering manager who just loves the art of people management, like that could be a great person to have in that role. So um, and now if they've never done it before, again, I would emphasize like have an awesome employment lawyer like on call because like weird stuff comes up. The one thing about HR and running it that I didn't expect or realize is like there's just a lot that happens behind the scenes that nobody knows. Like I definitely see one of those people who's like, what do these HR people do all day? Like, like really, what do they do all day? And I can tell you, it is like one of it's, I liken it to being like an EMT. The hard part about HR is like, you're dealing with people and like, you can't predict when serious shit comes up for people and it comes up at random times and you can't be like, Oh, Hey, I know that really terrible thing just happened to you, but like, I got to get home. And, um, can we just talk about this Monday morning? Yeah, it just like doesn't you know, like you could ask my husband. Like there were many weekends that were blown up because stuff happens. Like a major executive quits on Friday afternoon. Well, now your whole weekend is spent dealing with figuring out what the comms are going to be, what the transition plan is going to be. Like the stuff yeah. doesn't wait, and so it's a lot like being an EMT, which makes the job. So it's got to be someone who's comfortable with like not having everything perfectly planned every week. Like you, yeah. you have your like okay. Oh, I'm gonna like find our new ATS system this week. And then Tuesday morning, phew, something hits and like, you gotta be ready to like manage that. Yeah. So I think that'd be somebody who's really flexible, who doesn't get stressed um, under pressure or under chaos. Um, so if you have someone like that internally, I think it could be awesome. Obviously the advantage of someone external is they hopefully bring a whole two box of best practices and things that they've seen and learned in other places. And um, and sometimes that's helpful perspective too, for especially the early founding team, where especially if it's their first time leading a large company, just having someone who's like seen the movie before, who's like, you know, been on that boat. It's like, don't worry, the storm will pass. It's going to be fine. Like, you know, just kind of keeping everybody steady. That can be pretty helpful to have someone on the outside, but you can also find mentors like that. If you promote someone internally for the first time into the job, like pair them up with a few great people who've done it before and, um, you know, I've, I've definitely had lots of conversations with chief people officers at other companies just as a sounding board, you know, as like different things come up. Totally. And, and the sell to them is, hey, this is an opportunity to, you know, play a leadership role in the company and to really define the culture and, and the people experience and sort of the, the product that is the company or that is the you know, internal experience. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're all out fighting for revenue and customers, but like, I think the most intense fight we're all in is for talent. And yeah. it's an incredibly impactful part of the company to be in. And, and you really talk about consequences, like the decisions you make and that you carry out have huge consequences for the future of, and like how an organization thrives. So I think it's, it's awesome. And by the way, like the market's super tight for the role. So it's an awesome, for people who love it, it's an awesome career opportunity. Like if you do well in that role, like you can like name your ticket, name your company in the long run. I'm sure anyone you would put into that would want to stay at On Deck forever. But, but, but truly, for someone who thinks it's interesting, it's I think it's as almost as competitive as VP of Engineering these days, from what I hear from wow. from founders. It's a very very hard role to fill. Yeah, no, totally. We've we've been looking for for some time. Segwaying a little bit, so you were sort of a person who's seen world class institutions like like Facebook, et cetera. You, you know you. Smart can think of things from first principles. When you were in this role, and and how would you advise others in terms of what to what to sort of rethink from first principles, um, and what to sort of you know take back best practices from the industry, um, in terms of how they do certain things. What comes to mind for you in terms of here's we'll just copy everyone does it like this. That's it, pretty we've solved that as an industry. Versus no, actually 
you know, for equity, for example, you, you sort of rethought, you know, that from a compensation perspective. Where do you think about that in general in terms of room to innovate versus, hey, let's just take best practices? The few guiding principles I think that are like carryover everywhere is, and I've been beating this drum already in the podcast, but like clear mission and values, like no matter where I would ever be a chief people officer, like that would be the place to start. Um, and, and most importantly is that I want to know that as a chief people officer, I'm a hundred percent aligned with the CEO founder because that person is going to make a lot of decisions that I have to then carry out. So I think it's super important that as a chief people officer, you're like spending a lot of time making sure that that's really solid and super set and is like permeated throughout how you attract people into the company, their interview experience, their onboarding experience, their performance management experience, like that should um, permeate everything. And then I think it's important that you're setting the stage at anywhere I would go. I, I think it's super important to think about how do you create an inclusive culture so you can have lots of different views on values, like whether you're like move fast or you're more of a polished organization, or if you're like a super, you know, direct versus we're a little bit kind of nicer, empathetic, softer on the edges type organization. Like you can have a bunch of different things around those dimensions, but making sure that anyone, no matter who they are, walks in and feels like they could imagine themselves being successful at that company that's super important. And the way you do that is really also creating psychological safety with the people that you have internally. So that would be something I would, I would definitely spend my time on. Um, and then the last, I think kind of universal first principle thing that is always important is whenever, whenever something's coming up in the company, like I, I just hammer this in for, for managers, especially first time managers, like, you know, there's a conflict in the team or someone's just like, something's just not going well with someone on an individual basis it almost always comes down to either they feel uncertainty, like there's some uncertainty in the company, in their role, in their team, something is like really uncertain for them, um, or they feel unimportant, like something was done that made them feel unimportant. It was a reorg, a title, someone else got a title change or a promotion, their manager keeps pushing their one-to-ones or canceling their one-to-ones, like something is going on where that person is feeling not important. And so if you can step back and figure out how do we help create certainty for this person and make sure they know their importance in the organization, that generally solves like almost everything. So those are like the three things I'd say, no matter where I would go or what company I'd be in, I, I think about a lot. In terms of things to question, I definitely think compensation is a playground for innovation. Like people should be really thinking twice about what how they want to set up compensation and benefits, especially around equity. And the reason I say that is like all these templates that we get from, you know, really lovely firms, Gunderson, Fenwick, Cooley, whoever you work with, they're just going to hand you this equity stock, the stock plan. And it's going to have standard four-year vesting schedule with a one-year cliff and monthly vesting after that. And da, 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 da. Well, these were set up literally in the nineties when companies went public in three years of no revenue. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, that is why the four-year vesting schedule exists. It does not map to anything that is happening in today's world. Like, nobody starts at a company going, I know, I'm going to stay 48 months. Perfect. Like, people start being like, hey, I'm excited to be on board. I'll probably be here for a year or two. Like, maybe a little bit longer. But, like, nobody today starts at a company thinking they're going to be there for four years or whatever. Like, it's just an arbitrary number. And what ends up happening is that all these companies have so much equity locked up in future grants when people are going to leave in 18 months. 
And so, and by the way, if you misleveled somebody on the way in, now you've got someone who's either super under-investing compared to their impact or over-investing compared to their impact. So I'm a huge fan of companies considering two-year initial grants with an annual refresher grant that you would kind of cascade on top of it because it allows you to lock up less of the pool up front. And then every year you have an opportunity to like really reward the people who are having massive impact or like really outperforming the level that you hired them at or be even more conservative with people that maybe the jury's still out or they're still kind of finding their way or whatever. But you basically have like a lot more agility. Um, and frankly, it just maps a lot closer to what's actually happening in today's world in terms of employee tenure. So I would say definitely question the four-year vesting timeframe. Um, I also think you could question whether the one-year cliff is the right cliff. Like if you want to be really competitive with the market, make it a six-month cliff. Like, what, you know, there's nothing magical about these things because the reality is, I will say, if you fire someone at month 10 and you don't let them vest their first year of equity, they will tell everyone they know. I mean, it's like such a crappy thing to do to somebody. So the reality is people end up waving those cliffs most of the time. So they mean nothing. I mean, like, they're, except they're like a congratulations for, you know, working hard for a year. But like, <laughs> why not question all of these things? Um, the other things I think about are early exercise. I don't know why people are so anti early exercise. Like that's a great way for people to take, take advantage of potential tax savings. Um, but also like show their real commitment to the company if they have the means to do that. So I definitely am a fan of allowing employees to early exercise. And then of course the, the tenure exercise window, I think is like table stakes, even though that's still often defaulted to 90 days, um, post termination. So for those listening, you probably aware, but like most stock plans require people to exercise any of their vested options within 90 days of leaving the company, depending on where your strike prices or the FMV, like that can be, that can be extraordinarily difficult for some people. Um, and so it just means that then that piece of compensation becomes much less meaningful because they, they basically are like, well, if I left, I, I can't even afford to exercise it. So why stay? Um, and it almost actually ends up hurting you as a form of compensation. So I'm a huge fan of making sure you've implemented a 10 year um, exercise window if, if possible. I find your uh, thoughts on vesting really interesting here and would love to dive in more with this sort of, so just to recap, it sounds like your sort of proposed or what you would suggest to companies is a two year vest with a six year cliff. Maybe it would be like one option you would, oh, you would, six um, month is vest. that accurate? Six month, not six year. Sorry. Sorry. Six, six month. month vest, uh, yeah. <laughs> two year, two year with six month. Yeah. Cliff, um, how do you think about long-term retention with this? Um, you talked about like cascading annually. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think this is actually like a pretty novel approach. Yeah, we actually implemented something fairly similar at Quora. Um, and, and a big reason was that at the time, the VP of engineering and I had both been at Facebook and frankly saw a massive drop-off in our vesting at the 48-month mark, right? We were early employees. And then the, re the refreshers that we had gotten weren't anything compared to what we had gotten originally. And so that just, it kind of, you looked at it and you're like, why stay? I mean, like, I, I'd rather go somewhere else. So, um, so what we did was actually we... We, we did end up, we had already gone down the path of four-year vesting schedule, so that was a little bit harder for us to change. But what we did was was it grant additional grants every year on top of the original grant. And we made sure that going on a go-forward basis that that person was vesting in total at least as much as a new hire at that level 
if not a little bit more. So the point being like can happen is you hire a level three engineer right out of college and you give them the standard entry level engineering equity. And in six months, like, like we had, for example, we hired Alex Wang, the founder of scale, right? He was 17 years old and we hired him into Quora. He hadn't even gone to college yet. And by the time he like left after about, I guess a year, year and a half, like he was practically running a bunch of the infrastructure team. Like he was having the kind of impact You'd expect as someone who's now running a multi-billion dollar company, but like that doesn't make any sense that he's stuck with this like new grad package when his impact's so much greater. So if you have an annual process where you can like review the impact that people are having, and then you then have an opportunity then to basically add additional equity grants every single year going forward. And you could do those for, you could design it however you want. You could have investing immediately for the next year. You could have it be a two-year grant, like, you know, uh, a bunch of different companies have done different things, but I wouldn't keep it. I wouldn't make it too long. Cause again, that that's the same problem you have of locking up so much of your pool. If you could just make it like one year grant or two year grants, then I think that stacks really nicely over time and, and preserves the pool. Yep. I have one more follow-up on this. As you've talked about the great resignation a little bit, um, a lot of folks are moving around. What are some of the more creative ways or unique ways you've seen uh, companies uh, layer on benefits outside of equity that really attract people or keep their employees right now at a time when a lot of people are switching jobs? I've seen a number of things. I would say I haven't seen like the silver bullet though. I think this, I think everyone is struggling with this to be honest um, because in in many ways it's a huge positive for DEI. Like now you can go out and recruit people. Ge- geography is not a limiter. So you can recruit people from absolutely anywhere which really does open up the world uh, from a diversity perspective and is awesome. Um, so I, but I do think people still crave in-person time and, you know, hopefully we will get to a place where COVID is like the flu and we just kind of, we have a good testing. We have all the things we need to be able to gather safely in person. Like I, I was saying earlier, I have a two-year-old, so it's just been harder for me to get out there because she's not vaccinated yet. But like, I assume that day will come and I can be back out and doing a lot more in person. And I'm seeing companies, I think a a great practice is like fully distributed teams, live wherever you want. Um, We have certain hours of the day that you need to be available for in-person meetings. Maybe that's like, I don't know, 12 to four Pacific or something, you know, something that like kind of like works for most of the time zones, at least in North America. And then quarterly we get together for like super intentional week long offsite, which is like, half business, half just social, personal, getting to know each other, I think is like really important. Um, the other thing I've seen is with companies like um, Retrera, Mystery, um, I've seen a few different companies out there that are helping. And I mean, to some extent, Donut and Lunch Club do this too, but connect people internally around common interests. Like one of the interesting things we found at Quora is kind of related is people were most engaged with topics on Quora that were like super niche to them. So like, like I love thrift shopping. I'm just like a thrifter. I go to Goodwill, it's my therapy. I like love to like just run around to Savers or Goodwill on the weekend. And so I love reading about vintage stuff and thrifting. It's just very unique thing. I played Magic the Gathering in college. Like I'm really interested in strategy deck building games. Like, so finding those niche things amongst your employee population that they can connect on and there's, again, software that's doing this for people, but you could even organically do it if your company is small enough and create and then just pay for like pay for them to go do stuff together. Just be like, hey, you guys want to go do like a magic tournament? Like 
we'll pay for it. We'll buy you new decks. We'll do like, but like buy things that are so delightful and create a, sh a shared experience. Maybe, maybe Eric has like a family recipe that he loves to make and you could like Amazon prime all the ingredients to everybody's home. And like, you could all like cook together on zoom, right? Like there's a lot of things you can do, but it making it as personal as possible and connecting people on common interests, especially cross-functionally, I think is really important because the biggest, one of the biggest predictors of whether people will stay at a company is whether they feel like they have a friend at the company. And so what you're thinking about is like, how do you create friendships when we're over Zoom most of the time? And it probably means that you either need to be getting together in person sometimes, or you need to help people connect, you know, on stuff that's maybe not necessarily related to work, but, you know, they, they feel kinship with somebody else in the company. Yeah, that's really interesting. And maybe gearing towards close here, beyond sort of, you know, doing well as a company and having very clear values, what else do you advise your companies who are thinking about how to build great employer brands? Just like any branding, like I think having a, a clear point of view of like, what do you want people to know you for? Um, and then making sure that's really consistent in, you know, in fact, um, I, I funded a company called Matheson.io, which is focused on like your DEI strategy across hiring and retaining employees. And Arthur Woods, one of the co-founders, wrote a book called, I have it on my desk right here, Hiring for Diversity. And he talks a lot about this and like the way you think about your company brand and how you project your brand. So you have everything from like the classic like company website, but don't forget people find out stuff about you in all kinds of ways. They read your tweets, they read your blog posts, they might look at Glassdoor, they might look at G2, they might look at like you, you, you have a bunch of people that are in your ecosystem and on deck who are writing about on deck all the time. Like they're going to read about what that experience has been like and those interactions have been like. And so I think, you know, think about it as like cultivating or curating, like what are people seeing and knowing about us? If you, if you actually took like a VP of marketing for, I mean, I think it's great for the chief people officer to very closely connect with the VP of marketing and think of your company brand for the employee experience, just as much as you would think about it for your customer experience. So that might mean that you have things like brand trackers. You're actually, you're like measuring sentiment about your brand from a potential employee perspective or candidate perspective. Like what are people saying about you? Are you collecting feedback, for example, after the interview process of everyone who interviewed with you and making sure they have an opportunity to share like what they liked or didn't like? Um, maybe ask them. I think it's always important to also track like if you interviewed people, you gave them an offer, they didn't join you. Where do they go? Why did they go there and not with you? Like making sure you're spending a lot of time understanding like and the people that did choose you, why do they choose you? Like really asking those questions and collecting that data can help you get a really good sense of where your brand is really thriving and where it's really strong and where you might be falling a little bit short. And, and you don't have to be everything to everybody. Like that's the whole point of having a strong culture is like what's super differentiated and unique about your company, about working at your company. How do people know when they walk in like, oh, I'm at on deck. Like this is the on deck way. Like this is this is how we are with each other as a company thinking about like, what is it that makes that unique? And then how do you make sure that that's really clear to people who might join you? Um, so uh, there's a lot to it. There's no like one checklist. I'm actually thinking about publishing a few guides and resources um, in early 2022 around some of this. So if I, if I do that, I'll yeah. be sure to send that back over. Totally. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll distribute it. Last question. You, you, 
you were covering sort of the importance of, of retaining talent and some, some thoughts there and the importance there about, uh, you know, people having a friend at the company. It's also important, of course, as people feel that they're growing. I'm curious if you recommend doing anything formal or, or kind of deliberate around encouraging mentorship within the company. Yeah, I, there are definitely some good companies out there that will like help match this up. I think it's especially important for underrepresented folks in the company to feel like they have a mentor um, and, and to be a bit more intentional about connecting them. But the honest truth is that like the best mentorship relationships are ones that form organically. Like it's just really hard. Like if someone is like, I really want to break into venture and they reach out to me, like, will you be my mentor? It just, it's so awkward. Like we have no contextual anything. Right. And so I think it's important that you incur again, like facilitating those types of informal exchanges, retreats, like opportunities for people to connect outside of like a formal business meeting setting is a great way to like, you know, informally set up those mentorship networks. But um, I also think it's important that people, you also kind of train junior people to understand that like mentorship can look like lots of different things. It doesn't have to be a formal monthly check-in with someone senior to you in the organization. Like it could be that you are just like, you're sitting in on some meeting with another senior person in the company and like, you're just getting the chance to watch them in action as they go and like close this big partnership or whatever. Like mentorship looks like a lot of different things. It doesn't have to be incredibly structured, but, um, but yeah, I think, you know, creating, I think for every company, it's going to be different. I think in the, in a distributed world, it's totally reasonable that you, you create some, even if it's like a six month trial, like let's match up people, you know, across the organization and, and try out this mentorship thing. I know we did that at Facebook and I remain close to a couple of folks that I was mentoring there. What I guess one other anecdote I'd say is like senior leaders in the company also just proactively reaching out to more junior folks just to set up time and chat and get to know them. Like at Facebook, Austin, when I opened the office there, I made sure to meet with every single new hire in their first week. And I asked them specific questions about like, what strengths are you bringing that you hope we can like really draw out in your first few weeks here. What if anything has you feeling anxious or nervous? Um, and what can we do to make sure you're successful? What can I do to support you? Like ask very specific questions that created like space for vulnerability and openness. Um, and, and again, that psychological safety that I think is super critical. People just need an outlet for that like psychological safety. And that's, I think a lot of what you're trying to solve with mentorship. Awesome. Uh, that's a that's a great note to to end on. Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and dropping a lot of uh, a lot of insight and and being helpful to us throughout. Yeah, best of luck to you guys as you uh, figure out this role. It's really important, and uh, I'm always happy to help. So pay me anytime. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Execs is produced by OnDeck, where top talent goes to start companies, find their next roles, or invest in their careers. If you're looking to start a company, uplevel your career, or navigate a career transition, I encourage you to visit beyonddeck.com. See you next time.